Hey, podcast listener. Are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. So in your case, CPA, who are your more, most profitable clients and what is it that they want that you're currently not offering to them? And could you split the risk out across two, three, four hundred clients where the vast majority of them are not going to waste your time or bug you with silly things. And when you spot those troublemakers or the time vampires, as I'll call them, that really ruin the profitability of a subscription, you can fire them. Welcome to Smart Strategy for CPAs, where I help you work less and earn more. My name is Geraldine Carter. We're back today with Jonathan Stark. In case you missed it, we did a recording with Jonathan a couple of weeks ago, but go back and check it out. It's Better Pricing Strategies. And there was so much great content in there, and I knew there would be. Plus, there was so much more to talk about that I invited him to come back on to continue the conversation about pricing. So before we get into a little bit more, Jonathan, want to say hello to our listeners. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Looking forward to it. Glad to have you back. Your episode is uh, one of the most listened to already, and it's only been a couple of weeks. So that says something. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. So let me set this up. One of the problems that CPAs run into in their practices is that they tend to fall back on two methodologies for pricing, and that is billing by the hour and flat rate which tends to be a cost plus version of billing by the hour where they simply say, I think that'll, I think these returns will take me four hours and at 250, that's a thousand dollars. So 1250 flat rate. So they tend to have these two methodologies and it limits them in terms of um, how they price in their firm. Coupled with the problem that hourly billing is problematic in that the client doesn't have a price until after the work is done. And if the bill exceeds the value to the client, that's a big problem. So we, what we wanna talk about today are different pricing methodologies for CPAs. And then we also wanna pick up from our last conversation where you mentioned altitudes of engagement. So I wanna roll that back in. Plus uh, questions from the audience and we'll wrap it up if we get this far with your favorite reading recommendations. Let's jump in with pricing methodologies. And you and I, before we started recording, I laid out a couple of options, namely retainer, value-based, contingency, and subscription. So walk us through, if you will, what those different pricing methodologies look like, what's good to use in what kind of circumstances, and why you don't want to use them in certain circumstances and what the risks are. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so uh, I'll try and do them in order if I can, if my brain will remember them. The first one you mentioned was value pricing. And that's an approach that I use for custom project work. And I define a project to be some, some sort of a collaborative endeavor that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it has some, some goal, some business outcome that's desirable. So it's, it's not something that the, the provider or the CPA, or in my case, the software developer can just go do on their own. It has to get, there's going to be ongoing input from the client. It's collaborative, but it's not an open-ended forever and ever until you get sick of me uh, type of engagement. It's got a purpose. And if you have those ingredients, then you can create a proposal for a project that has value prices that, you know, where the outcome of the project is going to be worth something to the client. It, that could be a high number. It could be a low number. The way value pricing works is that you find, you, you get an idea of what that number might be by talking to the client and having what I call the why conversation. And you get a sense of that. And then you come up with a proposal that would have three prices in it, small, medium, and large, where you set the prices based on a fraction of what you believe it's worth to the client. So if you can make a case that the project is going to be worth $100,000 to the client, then you can come up with three pr prices that are a fraction of that. Like I would usually use a, I call it a Goldilocks pricing curve where you'd say, okay, 10,000, 22,000 and $50,000. Those are three prices based on the value. Now I'm going to come up with a scope. So I scope last. What could I, what would I happily do for $10,000 that would help this client get a little bit closer to that goal, the outcome of the project that you're trying to, they're trying to achieve. What could I do for $22,000 to help them move this needle? What could I do for $50,000? What are all the things and all of the, what are all the, maybe people I could bring in? What are all the ways that we can engage for a budget of $50,000 that I would be totally happy to do? And I'd present the proposal with the three prices to the client. And if you're essentially right about the, uh, call it a guesstimate or, you know, whatever, whatever you think it's worth to them, maybe you can make a very clear case that this will be worth a hundred thousand dollars to them for sure. Or maybe it's a little hazy and maybe it's, maybe it's worth 50,000 or 75,000 or 200,000. You're not quite sure, but you know, it's in the ballpark. Then one of these three prices is going to be acceptable. So that's value pricing in a nutshell, you know, their entire huge books on this, but that's, that's basically in a nutshell. It's best fit for projects that are non-trivial, as I described before, like, so that the higher the urgency, the, you know, in other words, how quickly the, the client needs this thing done, how fast they want it done. Uh, and the level of importance to the business, like, is this a bet the business project? Is this like critically important to the business and it needs to be done right now as fast as possible? Those are the best kinds of projects for value pricing because the urgency, the value is going to be so high because of the urgency and the impact of the project that you can set prices that are uh, acceptable and have a very profitable, there's a huge margin between the amount of work you would need to do and the value to the client. So there can be a lot of margin in there for both parties. Like it can be a real win for both parties, but for little tiny things, you know, like a tax return or something, uh, it's probably not the greatest fit. Um, it's, to, you have to really have a sales conversation. It's like creating a custom product every single time you talk to a client. So generally you're going to want to have them be bigger projects so that the dollar amounts 
are reasonably high, you know, it's to kind of cover your time investment of doing the proposal in the first place. So usually going to be bigger projects. Okay. And when you say reasonably high, sorry to cut you off, you're talking multiple five figures, six figures like that. Yeah, usually. Yeah. In there, you mentioned Goldilocks pricing and you went through those numbers super quick. So let's touch on them again. You did 10, 2.2 or 22 and 50%. So walk us through that again. Right. So the idea there is uh, the curve, the delta between the, the three numbers, each of the two deltas gets bigger as it goes up. And there's a lot of study behind this, a lot of um, psychology behind offering three options and that humans are hardwired to usually go for the middle option. So uh, it's just a, it's like a, I think Gumroad or some e-commerce site did a study where they, they said, you know, what is the optimum shape of price increases when you give three options? Because the three options thing is, is well known it's the perfect number to offer somebody. It's not overwhelming, uh, but it's not an ultimatum. So it gives them enough to think about how to work with you instead of whether or not to work with you. It gives people something to compare. So the three prices thing is super important. That's a key piece. Then the question is how different should they be? And that's where I, the Goldilocks amount is for when you don't really need the project. You're not super desperate or you don't it's not like you really want to work with this client. It's not like sometimes you'll, a client will come along and they're like famous and you really want to work with them. So you might use a different pricing curve to increase the odds that you'll land the project. But in my case, you know, if you're, if it's just like a, another day and it's another lead, then I would almost always go with this Goldilocks pricing curve and it drives the buyer to the second option. And what's wild about that is, um, it works for projects also works for products, but if more people are buying the second option, then you're more than doubling the amount of money that you would have made. Uh, and yeah, it's a different scope, but you're more than doubling the revenue that if you just give them like option one, then if you just give them option one, then you left a ton of money on the table if they would have picked option two. And then option three is there just in case you wildly underestimated the value. So you don't leave a ton of money on the table. Um, but most times people do not buy option three. Usually they'll look at option three and say, well, oof, that's really expensive. But option two seems really reasonable compared to that. So, you know, all of this is contingent on you having a reasonably good guesstimate at the value to them, what the thing is worth. And it's going to drive people to that second option. If you find that people are always picking your third option, your prices are way too low. Okay, great. We haven't talked about this yet, but the other curve that you talk about is might as well. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a run through might as, the might as well curve? Right. The psychology of the might as well curve is to drive the client to uh, option three, where the deltas decrease as they go up. So, um, you know, I think it's one, 1.5 and 1.75 I usually use. And you can, you know, round them a little bit so they don't look like ridiculous. But, you know, roughly the, the, the concept is someone gets the proposal, they look at the price, the first price is 10,000 and they're like, mm, okay, that's higher than I thought. But what do I get for, you know, for 15,000, if we're going to do this for 10,000, we might as well consider option two, because it's got all these other benefits. And if, geez, if we're thinking about 15,000, might as well look at the $17,000 option. It's only $2,000 more and it's the top option. We should really think about that. So I would use that in a situation where you really want the client for some reason, like you really want the client or you really want the project, you need the money, whatever the, whatever the reason is, it is going to drive the client to option three. So you won't leave as much money on the table. And since you're giving them three options, you're not going to, it's not just an ultimatum of like, 
because if you just give them one price, they have nothing to compare it to. So what are they going to do? They're going to go shop around. They say, okay, this, this person wants to charge 10,000. Let's go see if we can get the same thing for less from somewhere else. Uh, so you don't want them to have to think that they want to compare numbers. So if you give them three numbers to compare, they'll do it. And with this curve, it's, it's, I would set a higher, my option one would be probably higher than in a, 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 a Goldilocks curve, but uh, it would still probably the top option would still be a lot less than half the value. So it's, it, it's kind of hard to do this just in audio, but the idea is that there's different psychology at play here. And I would use um, the Goldilocks pricing curve. If I kind of, you know, if like I want the job, but it doesn't matter if I don't get it. And then I would use might as well pricing if you really wanted to have a win for some reason. Okay, great. And just to bring this theory down to the ground a little bit, I'm thinking about the kinds of projects that might be software integrations where you're linking up different software things, QuickBooks with some other thing that so you can talk to you and get your data out of it that might take a while because you've got to clean it up first. Then you've got to figure out the integration that never goes smoothly. And then you've got to test it afterwards to see if it works and so on. So I'm imagining that could be a discrete project where this kind of pricing would be useful because there's varying scopes, right? You could have somebody else do the cleanup first for the lowest price and so on. Yeah, I mean, with, with a might as well pricing, I find myself in the software space using that for some kind of implementation. There's not a lot like like option one has to include implementation, which if we talk about the altitude of, of engagement, then that's the middle altitude. And that's also what a lot of service providers providers start out doing. So they're most comfortable with it. Uh, so, you know, in a case like that, I would probably I, I would be, um, I would still scope last, but it's like, it's usually an implementation project and the higher tiers would uh, offer additional benefits to the client that, that the base model doesn't offer. So the, the biggest chunk of scope in a project like this is usually going to be option one and option two and three would be desirable features that aren't necessary in a version one. So maybe it'd be something like a client portal or, um, who know, or, or like maybe option one is a brand new system, but you don't import all the data from the old system. So the, so option two includes a data import with validation and something like that. And maybe option three includes handover to their internal developer where for an extra 2000 bucks, you'll record three, um, you know, like, like uh, pair programming calls with their internal developer to kind of walk through how they set everything up and, you know, maybe a couple of follow-up calls. So, yeah, it's, it's all about coming in both cases, though. It's all about coming up with what it's worth to the client first. This is why it's more fair than hourly billing, because you will never charge them more than it's worth to them. You will always charge less, and in some cases, a lot less than it's worth to them. And then you pick a scope last. It's, it sounds crazy because everybody wants to think about scope first, especially if they're used to cost plus. But if you flip it around, your prices can actually affect the scope. In fact, they, they should, I feel like they should. So it's, it's a backwards way to think of it. It's like a flipping it on its head, but that's, that's the key tr trick. If you want, that's the, the mind shift here. Okay. We need to unpack scope for a second, because I think there's, you're talking about scope in terms of what you offer as the provider, but there's also the piece of scope, which is how big is the project? Once I look under the hood. And I think where CPAs get burned a lot is that 
they say yes to a project, they estimate it's going to be $5,000 in their own sort of hourly billing math. And then they get under, underneath the hood and it turns out instead of two bank accounts, there's 15 and in turn, and, you know, and things are far messier than anybody described and so on. So then they end up putting in four times the hours and billing four times the estimate. And of course the client's furious. <laughs> yeah. So how do you, how, how do you approach that? That happens exact same thing. Exact same thing happens in software. And just to, if someone's in that situation where they estimated the cost was going to be, you know, they estimated the scope of work. To me, that's their cost, the provider's cost. The cost to me, it's only going to take, it's only going to cost me 20 hours to do this project. That's my guess. Or, or 200 or 100, whatever. It, you guess that it's going to be 100 hours. They agree to the project. You get in there and you find out it's not two bank accounts, it's 200. I'd give them their money back. I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't discover this up front. It didn't come up. Here's your money back. I wouldn't just keep going. So that's, I mean, that is something that most people does, does not occur to them. And I've done it on multiple occasions on my own with clients and with students where there's a giant surprise that did not come up until the first week of the project. It is not too late to give them a refund. Why would you go on this forced march to hell for the next six months of either getting killed by sticking to your hourly rate or changing the deal and saying like, oh, this is going to be way harder, change orders, we're going to switch to hourly billing. It's just a bad discovery. Like like there were too many unknowns. You shouldn't have taken the project probably. Okay, so abort mission. Abort, exactly. Everyone will be a lot happier. Like no one's going to be happy about that, but they'll be a lot happier than if the project goes off the rails. Yes, yep. The risk of saying no sooner is much less than the risk of getting completely mired and making a mess later. Yep. So what happens if this is an existing client who is on a subscription sort of monthly billing program that you, so they're already paying you monthly and they requested this additional project that you did poor discovery on and gave them an estimate that was one fifth of what it ought to have been. No, you're really trying to, <laughs> you're messing a whole bunch of different things. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself in that situation in the first place because that's a disaster. Okay. So this is, we didn't even talk about subscriptions yet. So let's, right. let's see, let's hold that off. And you're also, cause I know people do this. It's a good question. You're also conflating bad retainers. So it's all kind of jammed in here where like this client pays me like for a bucket of hours every month, but they also want me to do this other thing. And like, I don't want to throw away that monthly revenue, but, and I do want to take this project, but they expect me to do it for free because they're already paying me every month. Yeah. It's, it's as crazy as it sounds. Don't do that. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's real. Like this is a real example. Yeah. I've seen it plenty of times and it gets super confusing and it's not just confusing for you. It's confusing for the client too. They just want the thing done. Like, can you just give me a price? Like, why is this so complicated, right? You know, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So to finish on the, uh, to wrap up on the value pricing custom project scope issue, if you have a desired outcome, well, not you, the client, client has a desired outcome and you've agreed to it. This is the goal and that will have a value to them. And then if you set your prices at a fraction of that, and you did a good job with the estimate on what the value is, then there will be an acceptable price and you can set the scope then. And the way that you keep the scope from going way out of control is by always bringing the client back to the objective. So one way that scope can get out of control is the client starts grabbing the steering wheel. So like you're driving the cab and the client is reaching from the back seat and trying to steer. Don't let them do that. 
and set the expectation up front that they are not going to be allowed to tell you how to do your job and you won't tell them how to run their business. They can tell you all the information about the shoes that they make and their clients and, and what clients want, all that stuff. They are the expert of their business and they are the expert of what they want, the desired outcome. But you're not going to let them tell you how to do your job. You can't tell your doctor how to treat you. So if you act like a doctor in this situation, it gives you a lot of control over the scope. They say, oh, well, why don't you try doing my taxes like this? Why don't you do my books like this? Why don't you do my books in some other program so that I can mess with them too? And then they're in there messing with them while you're trying to work on them. No, you're hiring me to do this for you. Go away. We will and trust that I will achieve this outcome for you and don't micromanage me. So that's one big thing. Um, the other thing is if you are nervous about scope up front, even if you're going to do all this stuff I said and, and be like a professional and not let the client tell you how to do your job, then your prices are too low because if you set this price and you say, okay, it's worth a hundred thousand to them. Here's an option for $10,000. Pick a scope that's that you would happily do for $10,000. So when it turns out that you were wrong and it's harder than you thought, because you always are, you still don't care because there's profit margin there. So you've got some room to move. So a lot of times when people have these concerns about scope and surprises and all that, it's because their margins are razor thin and the slightest thing is going to blow their profitability. Your prices are too low. So if you can find clients for whom the value of what you do is higher, then set your prices higher. If you can't find anybody, if you can't attract clients who have very high value projects, then you have to set your prices lower because you can't charge more than it's worth. They won't accept it. And you have to figure out a way to have a very, very small scope. Maybe it's maybe the, maybe the, the initial tier, the first tier, maybe it's training. Maybe it's you teach them how to set up their own books, or maybe it's you give them um, some uh, materials that you've created and you walk them through it. So you say, hey, I'll give you all this, all the QuickBooks set up and you can just import these template files. It'll set up all your books the way that it should be. And then you get two phone calls with me to follow up to make sure that you did it right and help you do the initial data entry. But they're doing it. You just teach them how to do it. And they're only gonna pay you $1,000 for this instead of 10,000. But if you set the scope to a place where you would happily do it for $1,000, you'll be happy. And even if it takes a little bit more work than you expected, like there's one extra phone call, you're not going to care. So if people are really, really worried about scope, it's either because they're letting their clients micromanage them, which is unprofessional, or they're setting the prices way too low. Okay, great. So let's go back over to the part where everything was getting conflated, the subscription plus the project. Yeah. And why don't we dig into that piece by talking first about the subscription model? So speaking from personal experience, like personal desire as a client, I mean, I have a, I have an accountant and, uh, and she's great. She charges me by the hour, which I think is bonkers. I'd much rather pay her annually and just have it include certain things and not feel like, I mean, honestly, I don't feel like this with her specifically. So Pat, if you're listening, um, she does all kinds of things for me for free. And it's the kind of stuff that I would expect from a sort of a concierge CPA. And I, I wish she was getting paid for it. She doesn't bill me for it. I maybe I'll send her maybe a 
bottle of champagne or something. But, you know, with all this COVID stuff, she sends me emails periodically like, hey, there's this new thing that you qualify for. Maybe you get this grant and get free money. Uh, you know, she like she's proactive, like like my doctor, like I have a concierge doctor. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but you pay, you know, like 1500 bucks a year. And that allows the doctor to not have to like churn through 40 clients a day or patients a day. So when I go to the doctor, I have like an annual, uh, annual checkup. I'm in there for two and a half, three hours. That's unheard of in the United States with the like normal healthcare or lack thereof. And you feel taken care of. It's worth a lot of money. It's worth more than I pay. And I would love it if the arrangement with my CPA and my lawyer were just like that, where I would expect certain things to trigger them to send me an email like, my doctor should send me an email, email every time COVID rules change or every time there's new guidance from the medical community. My CPA should send me a information every time there's something relevant to me. I'm not following this stuff. I hate thinking about money. She loves thinking about it. She's good at it. It's like a natural superpower for her. So pay attention to that stuff and let me know. And she does that. I, you know, if, if she said, look, it's $1,500 a year or even 3000. And for that number, you get X, Y, and Z, you know, it would be uh, annual tax return, which she's familiar with. So she could price it in a way that's not going to be a problem. Um, she does my personal and business and just like, I can call her whenever maybe there's some, we could get into, well, since we're talking about subscriptions, I wish that there was, um, that she was sort of like my personal trainer. So like, I don't like, I know how to work out. I know how to do sit-ups. Why don't I do it though? Why do I pay somebody 700 bucks a month so that they yell at me to do sit-ups? Cause I won't do it (laughs) if I don't. And I would like her to do the same thing with my spending or uh, financial planning, or, you know, meet once a week or twice a week, or sorry, not twice a week, but like once a week or, or once a month and sit down and have her do all the stuff that I know I should be doing. I know I should be doing sit-ups, but I'm not. And I know I should be tracking my spending and doing all this other stuff, but I'd much rather come on podcasts and write books and, and things that are actually beneficial use of my time, not go through my Amex statement. So who knows what's on my Amex statement? Not me. And that's bad. I know it's bad. But if I was paying her $3,000 a year to sit down with, to drag me through it, drag me through my statements at the end of each month and say, do you see how much you spent at Target? Like, this is ridiculous. Get it under control. That would give me all sorts of benefits. Because then I could say to my wife, Pat says we are out of control in our Target spending. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but we should probably pump the brakes. It would be amazing. And if she, and if Pat had, you know, I think, I think my, doctor has like 400 patients and I've never, I think one time only have I ever seen another patient in the waiting room when I go there. It's quiet. It's not busy. It's not crazy. So, so maybe 400 is a magic number. Maybe she has 400 people that pay her $3,000 a year to do all this stuff, or maybe it's five, whatever the number is, but you look at your client base, you look at the, the sort of fixed costs of doing their taxes or their books or however much that is if you want to keep doing that stuff and not just be my financial trainer, like my personal trainer. And, and, and maybe you split that stuff out. Maybe it's a tiered offering, but if you look at your client base and you say, eh, this guy's taxes, we've done this guy's taxes for 10 years. He pays about 300. I don't even know how much I pay. I don't even know. It might be 300. It might be a thousand. I don't even know. And she just sends me the bill and I pay it immediately. 
So why not just roll that into one big thing? I make one payment per year. Maybe I spread it out monthly and I, I pay her $1,000 a month or something. No, that'd be a lot. Like what's, what did I say? 3,000 divided by 12. So maybe it's $300 a month. I pay more than that to my landscaper. I would totally pay that to my financial planner or whatever you want to call this, my, my financial trainer, and just 300 bucks a month. Yeah. And then once a month we sit down and she yells at me and I do what she says. And then uh, the taxes happen, the bookkeeping all happens and all that stuff happens. And if you could do that, spread that across 400 people, if you could handle 400, it depends on how big your firm is, of course, but you know, times $300 a month, I mean, do the math. That's five zero, so 1.2 million. It wouldn't be bad. So that's that's what I would see as a subscription, where you have a all, you know, like, of course it has defined scope. She's not mowing my lawn. It's, it's, it's a particular area of expertise where she would say, these are the things that are included in the subscription, and you can use it as much as you want. She knows I don't want to sit on the phone and talk to her. I'm not going to like eat up her time. I've got other things to do. That's why I'm hiring her. I don't want to think about money. I want her to think about it. So what you're saying on the subscription front, you're saying take the tax return, roll it into the bookkeeping, put it in price on that for the whole product and divide it by 12 and add enough padding on the price so that your margins are fine. And that way, when stuff comes up that's relevant to your client, you have no hesitation about reaching out to them to say, hey, this, that, and the other, because the one phone call is not going to make a big difference. And the one meeting every month is worth it to them to be like, hey, you need to pump the brakes at Target. Stop spending so much on markers or whatever. It's rugs. <laughs> <laughs> How many rugs can a person buy? We have dogs. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways. So it's just a, it, whatever the specifics are is almost irrelevant. It's not totally irrelevant, but you can decide. So the CPA can decide, like maybe it's a, a solo operator or maybe they have a firm and, you know, a few employees or maybe it's a big firm. But you can create for, here's the thing, you have to pick the clients. It's not going to be a great fit for every person that you work with probably. If you have a typical generalist firm and you've got all these different types of business owners and, and personal and all that. Pick the most profitable segment and say, what do these people wish? What do these people want from someone who has my kind of expertise? And stop, it, like to me, the, the taxes and the, the bookkeeping thing is like, yeah, 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 we'll keep doing that. Don't worry about that. The more important thing is you have peace of mind that in a, there's an adult in the room who understands money, which is not my thing at all. It's funny. I talk about pricing all the time, but in terms of personal finance, not my thing. So that, that person, Pat in this case, could easily be that person for me. It would, it would be amazing. So in your case, CPA, who are your more, most profitable clients and what is it that they want that you're currently not offering to them? And could you split the risk out across two, three, 400 clients where the vast majority of them are not going to waste your time or bug you with silly things? And when you spot those troublemakers or the time vampires, as I'll call them, that really ruin the profitability of a subscription, you can fire them. Yeah, we find a new home for them. So there are two things in there. One of them is the take the compliance plus the back off, which what they call back office counting and end accounting, which I take issue with the term end to end. But anyways, it's a topic for another time and roll it all up into one. And would you provide three options on the subscription where one of them is bare bones, where you just get compliance plus your, you know, your monthly PL. Another one is 
you know, next level up, maybe it includes guidance, where can you cut expenses, observation of your revenue streams. And the third one is Goldilocks Cadillac, where you get a bunch of attention and other goodies packed into it. You could, but most firms are going to have multiple offerings already. So you, you could do that, but if the subscription's not a good, that would sound to me like you haven't picked your target market. So it's like, well, uh, business owners that are doing 10 million a year would get this one and business owners that are doing 1 million a year would get this one and new business owners would get this one. It's almost like three different products. Um, And you could have that. That's fine if you want to do it. I don't think it's as necessary though, because you could have, you're probably going to not just sell that one subscription. If, if the only thing you sold in your whole business was a subscription and that was it, then yeah, I'd probably have three tiers. But you probably already have a whole bunch of services. And if you're just going to add on this new thing, I would probably keep it simple and experiment with it, it at first because you're not, you're probably not going to pick the perfect price for it right out of the gate. You might not pick the f- perfect target market right out of the gate. So I wouldn't complicate it with a lot of options right up front. Uh, because you're probably still offering lots of other options that aren't subscriptions. So you could kind of test them. I would test the market probably at a single price and play around with that and see where the sweet spot was. But eventually you could end up saying, we're not doing any custom projects anymore because this subscription thing rules and we've got it down to a science. We've got our, we've figured out exactly who our best customers are. And we've heard from them that a sub segment wants additional types of things additional kinds of advisory, especially advisory stuff. That would be my favorite. I wouldn't want to add like more typing, you know, more like more market insight or something. I don't know. And something like that. I would add potentially add higher tiers once people were asking for them. Uh, There are so many things in there that I want to talk on. One protestation will be, well, you know, what if I bring them on at a certain time of the year, the bulk of their work is during tax season and I bring them on and I'm, so let's, okay. So let's say they come on in March, you take them on at 400 bucks a month and you, the first thing you do for them is their return. And then say by June, they bail Mm -hmm. and now you've lost. Are you, are you saying in general, or you mean when you first launch this, I'm, I'll answer both actually don't launch it right before tax season. Okay. Great yeah. answer. Done. Launch it right after tax season. Okay. People are only allowed, you're only allowed to enroll in this service after tax season is over. Yeah. Open enrollment. Okay. And that's one thing. Another thing is be really picky about who you work with or who you offer it to. You don't necessarily have to offer it publicly on your website. You could, you know, in Pat's case, she's been in business for probably 20 years. She could reach out to individual. She could cherry pick the clients who she knows doesn't, bu- don't bug her and just be like, I'm starting a new program. It's for people exactly like you, and it's going to be this much. It's going to start in June or where, whenever. It's going to cost this much per month, or you could pay annually for a 10% discount, which however she wants to do that, it almost doesn't matter. And this is what it includes. Are you in? And handpick the first 10 or 20 of these, maybe not even that many, maybe maximum of 10, and see how it feels. It's going to feel different. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be like, oh, these people could, they, they could, I could get killed. I could get killed. It's like, it's not, yeah, you could get killed. It's a a whole thing is about taking risk. Like if you're not taking any risk, you're not going to get any reward. The reality is, because I've done advisory retainers for years and years and years. And if you work with the right kind of people, 
they don't want to talk to you. The reason they have you is because they don't want to talk to you. They're not going to sit around and be like, oh, how's it going today? Yeah. Okay. So great, great point. And let's transition over to advisory. Let's talk about the different types of advisory so that we get this straight in people's heads. Because when people say retainer, CPAs, I think in their ears, they hear lawyer style retainer, which is more like a prepaid debit card that you top up once you run it dry. And this is not that. We're talking about advisory retainer or and or consultative with a little bit of work involved that's sort of irregular, but not big enough that you want to bill for it or value price it up front. So unpack retainer for us. Right. Or, or there's no project. Remember what I said a project was. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there's a specific goal. Yeah. So if you don't have that, then you could set up, potentially set up an advisory retainer as an offering. And it's a, it's a kind of subscription, but it has a very specific scope of work to it, which is that the client has 24-7 access to your expertise. And the the expert, the CPA in this case, isn't doing their taxes. They're not filling out paperwork. They're not doing any of that stuff. They're available as an expert to answer financial questions or whatever questions in the area of expertise for people who care about that stuff. So for me in the past, this has always been extremely profitable because the clients don't call you that much, but when they do, they want an expert answer really fast. And if they don't have you on this advisory retainer, how, who knows how long it would take me to get back to them and we'd have to set up some kind of like payment thing, or they're basically just asking me for a favor, which they don't want to do. So they just don't call me. I'd rather have them call me and have just like a financial arrangement already put in place so that if they're going through a situation, maybe it's, maybe it's evergreen, you know, like lifelong, or maybe it's periodic, you know, um, changing job, you know, moving to a different state, have to buy a new house, move into a different job. And I just like to have, you know, find it, or I'm setting up a new business. And I would just like to know that I could call you and not feel like I'm being a, a jerk or asking for a favor. There might be some upheaval of some kind going on in their business. Maybe they're getting sued. Maybe they're getting audited. Who knows? But for some reason, they want to have a hotline to your brain for some reason. And it's like an insurance policy. There's no specific goal. It's just that they want to know that someone's in their corner. And this is like my doctor. Like it's extremely rare for me to contact him and say, eh, you know, my heart's racing or like my kid has a rash. Like some, I'd be like, I mean, my doctor's not even my kid's doctor, but he, I would be like, what is this rash? Do I need to worry about this? And just text him a picture. I would want the same thing from a CPA on an advisory retainer. It's it's hard for me to think of a reason why I would want an advisory retainer, like a CPA on an advisory retainer. It feels more like something a larger business would need. I, you know, I'm a solo operator, uh, but if somebody had, I don't know, like a, like a landscaping company that had a bunch of different employees and payroll is changing or something's changing and they're like nervous about something. I don't know what you'd have to tell me, but that would be a scenario for an advisory retainer where 24 seven access, you can expect a return call same day or day after if it's after hours. And if I don't have an answer, I'll let you know how long it's going to take me to find an answer to your question. It's basically like a Q and a, they have a question, they ping you, you give them an answer. So I think it would be 
what I think would be most common is to think of advisory retainer as rolled into subscription pricing and set your prices so that it includes that sort of access already. And if you wanted to split out and have something like Goldilocks pricing, eventually you could, the top tier, the 1.5x would include advisory retainer anytime access during business hours get back to you in 24 hours yeah i mean you can you can set it up like i said uh, advisory retainer is a kind of subscription the thing that's interesting about it is that you're not doing anything except for answering questions but the the quality of the answers is really high so the client for this is going to be someone who wants really high quality answers about finance, like whatever your expertise is. I'm not someone who's in that, I'm not a client for this, but I am definitely a client for the financial trainer thing, like the personal trainer, financial advisor thing. The other thing where it could come into play for CPAs and they tend to not be niche, they tend to be shallow generalists, shallow expertise generalists, mm -hmm. is that when they niche, as they become more expert in a single industry or profession, and they shift out of the day-to-day -day work of compliance, tax, back office accounting, and they shift more into wisdom, expertise, and guidance for that industry, then it would seem to be more of an option for advisory retainer without the back office accounting or compliance or you know even CFO level piece. Sure. So mm -hmm. do we talk about contingency? Not yet. <laughs> Take a crack at it. Okay. I've never done contingency, so let's start there. Um, but I know I have students who have done it and can it can be very successful. Oh, that's not true. I have done contingency a couple times, but very, very experimental. The upside is huge. So if your risk tolerance is such that you can offer lower fees initially for whatever the whatever the engagement is, but you get a piece of the back end, whether, you know, like I, I think it's pretty common for financial planners to do this where some some amount some percentage of uh, the wealth under management is what the fee is based on and so it's so it floats you can i think you can certainly do that it's what everything we're talking about here is risk how much risk do you want to take and spreading that out over enough clients that any one uh, incident where the thing that you're afraid of happening happens it's small because you've got 300 clients and it's only happening in like 1% of them where someone is a time vampire or the scope is like wildly bigger than you thought it was and you don't want to abort the mission. You know, so if you spread that risk out over lots of different clients, it's just not that dangerous. But when people are used to billing by the hour, there's no risk in billing by the hour. So there's zero. So they're afraid that they're afraid that switching to any kind of risk is like an existential threat, but it's totally not. But let me jump in here because there's no risk billing by the hour for the CPA because if the client pays their cost, their time will be covered. Right. The risk is the invisible risk that you end up billing them way more than the value was to the buyer. Yeah, there's no risk to the seller. There's tons of risk to the buyer. Okay, so let me also just jump in with when I hear you say contingency, I think a lot of CPAs are going to get hives in a heartbeat because one of the things that they can't do legally is tie their payment or their bill to how much they help their clients save on taxes because of the incentives, So, uh, which is legit. Still, there are ways around it. What would you say to that objection? 
I know that there are CPAs that do this. I don't know how they do it, and I know it's heavily regulated, but I know it's doable. But I don't, I don't, I can't give you a specific answer. Okay, I'm on a mission then to find CPAs who have successfully implemented contingency pricing. Um, in the interest of time, go with a client question. Okay. And then we'll wrap up with uh, book recommendations. Oh, good. So this is in reference to a recent podcast episode, uh, 104, if you're listening, how much would a CPA pay for a kid's bike, where I broke down five different wrong ways, incorrect, I hate to be direct, but incorrect ways to price it, namely like cost plus and the component parts and it's like how long it takes to build it and what the owner wants to make in order to send his kids to private school and so on. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's funny. So she says, okay, the Hazel Bike podcast was great. Um, I completely understand that you're selling an emotion, but to me, feelings are priceless. The comfort I or my clients get from knowing what their financial future looks like brings me so much peace, and I would call it priceless. But I can't charge a gazillion priceless dollars. You said we shouldn't fall back on parts pricing or market pricing or time pricing. So where does that leave me between market pricing and a gazillion priceless dollars? I want to fall back on market pricing um, and then gut check to adjust for my potential client's ability to pay and see value in that pricing. Not sure if that's right. Smiley face. Okay. So, so what she's fishing around in is value pricing. She's trying to figure out because she's talking about, you know, the value is infinite. Right. So it's, and that's obvious. I mean, that's not true. The value is not infinite on the feelings. You know, the, the trip to Disneyland is not infinitely valuable. So it's, it's a classic case of like people, a lot of times I'll say like, how much is this worth to the client? And they'll say, I have no idea. It's like, well, I'll bet you do have an idea. Is it worth a hundred million dollars to the client? And they'll be like, no, no, no. I'm like, well, I guess you have an idea. You don't know exactly, but that's not the same thing as not having an idea of, of what the value is. So I, I agree with the premise, it's sort of poetic that, you know, your health, it's priceless, your kid's happiness, priceless. Okay, but there's a, there is a limit to how much you will pay for it. Because the thing that you're buying isn't guaranteed to achieve that. I'm not guaranteed that my kids are going to, uh, you know, be ecstatic if I took them to Disney World. It's not guaranteed. There's a likelihood. Everything is about these percentages and like the the, the probability. So... The first thing I would ask is, in a value pricing scenario, you're talking to a person. Unless you're a giant corporation, you are not going to value price a market or a market segment. You've got a custom project with a specific buyer at a specific company, and the thing is worth something to them, and, and it has a upper bound. It's the most they would pay. What is the maximum you would pay to achieve this outcome? And while they might not be able to just blurt out an answer to that question, the number exists because they've got, uh, there's a formula you can use, but I think we talked about it the last time, the max price formula. There's desire, just how badly they want this thing, times desire, times buying power. And this is why no price is, nothing is priceless because there's always buying power with a particular person. So then you got buying power. Right, and a limit to the buying power. Yeah, there's a limit, always. It's a finite resource. Or some people would say a priority, but nonetheless, there is a maximum amount, of, there's a specific amount of money in someone's buying power pool. Right, so she doesn't have a gazillion dollars because people have limited buying power. Right, so, and then underneath that, and this is probably the biggest problem for most people, 
is availability of options or of alternatives, sometimes I'll say. So if the person you're talking to has low desire and low buying power, and there's lots of options that they see, then the maximum amount of money that they're going to pay is going to be very low. So that's, it's kind of another way of saying like figuring out what the, what the worth is like the max price is, is synonymous with value. So that's the most they would possibly pay for something. So the, if you want to value price things, which is what this question is about, then you need to find people who have extremely high desire or you want to, you want to find people who have extremely high desire for what it is that you offer and that their buying power is extremely high. And they perceive that there are very few, if maybe zero available options. So you are the only person who does this thing that they want really bad and they are loaded. Then there's going to be a huge margin between what it's worth to them and probably how much it would cost you to, to do it. So you don't, there's no, it's like the idea of trying to throw value pricing into the abstract doesn't make sense. So if you're confused by value pricing, it could be that you're thinking about it in the abstract. The way you figure out the value is you talk to the buyer and you have the why conversation with them. And then you will find out things like their buying power. You will find out how badly they want it, how urgent it is, how big of an impact it's going to have. And you will find out what they think the alternatives are. Those, those what the three sets of questions are designed to figure out. Do they perceive lot that you're just one of many CPAs? If so, forget about it. You're never going to, you're basically going to charge like a, a extremely average amount of money. You're not going to, because they, they just see you interchangeable with everyone else. So they're going to pick the second cheapest option that they can find. Don't, I guess the, to wrap that up, I would say, don't try to think about value pricing in the abstract. Like it's not a way to price a subscription. It's not a way to price, um, a product you can, but I wouldn't bother just pick a price, you know, for a subscription, pick a price you'd be happy with for a subscription, pick a price you'd be happy with for a course or an ebook or for, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is that you want to sell a product, maybe you have some sort of financial product. That's, I don't know if that's legal or not legal, but regardless, just pick a price that you'd be happy with that has a relatively fixed scope and that's productized services. We didn't talk about this, but that's what I would do there. But if you're talking to another person, then you can come up with a value price. It really, the answer to the question is talk to your prospect, your buyer, and ask them a series of why questions to establish the value. Yes. And it might be low. It doesn't, this does not magically mean you're going to be a millionaire. The price might be low, but that's okay because if you can set some prices and and that uh, are less than that value, and there is a scope that exists for you to fit into those budgets, then great, it'll be mutually profitable. But sometimes the value just really isn't there. Right. You know, they're like, ah, oh, my brother-in-law told me I should really talk to you, but I don't, you know, I don't really. Yeah. That's not a good situation for value pricing. So value pricing ensures that it's a win for the buyer and profitable for the seller. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I love it. So let's end with, for people who want to understand this a little bit more deeply, what are a couple of your favorite books that you recommend on pricing? Uh, the first one, and I might've mentioned this last time because I recommend it all the time is called how to measure anything. Uh, I think the author's name is Douglas Hubbard and it's not about money per se, but it, it sort of breaks the myth that things that, that certain things can't be measured, that certain things are priceless. It's not true. You can measure anything, including beauty. So the, the beauty of a lake, I think is one of the examples in the book, like there's this lake in a resort town and they want to, 
increase the beauty of the lake to attract more people to the resort? How are we going to measure whether or not we increased or decreased the beauty of the lake? And he explains step by step how you would do that. And the the reason uh, well, I, I don't I would love I could talk about the book for hours. It's a mind blowing book. It will blow your mind. But the core premise is that a measurement doesn't have to be exact. It just has to be useful. So if you understand that about measurements, it will change everything about the way you you price things. That's going to be tricky for CPAs who want things to be exact if they're accounting. Yep, you got to get over that. <laughs> this is this stuff is squishy. It's squishy, and I would I would I it it cannot be different than any other science. Or there's always always some lack of specificity. Like if I asked you how tall you are, sure, yeah, I'd give me an answer. Depends if I'm wearing clogs or not. You, you'd probably you'd probably tell me in feet and inches or in centimeters, and then I would say, yeah, I would tell you as five nine more or less, right? And I would there's say, an imprecision. Exactly. No, you can't answer it exactly. It's impossible. You could say, oh, yeah, I just went to the doctor and they measured me with that thing, the stick on your head. I'm like, oh, are you sure that was calibrated properly? There's always a gray squishy area if you look close enough. Okay, another book recommendation. Almost anything by Ron Baker. Probably I'd pick Implementing Value Pricing by Ron Baker. And for listeners, I'll link to the sh- uh, I'll link in the show notes to the episode we did with him about six months ago. It's in the 80s somewhere. Yeah, and he's more of an expert in this space. That's his background. Um, so he would know more about regulations and contingency fees and those sorts of things. Okay, great. And of course, you can recommend your book. Well, I mean, if you're not convinced that hourly billing is nuts, you should get hourly billing is nuts. And I'm working on a new one called Ditching Hourly. So, you know, for folks who are still ditching hourly, hourly billing is nuts is about changing your mind and, and seeing how, how bonkers it is. But it doesn't tell you how to change anything. It's really just like a, a manifesto. Yeah. Um, but once you're convinced, then um, ditching hourly is the how-to. It's like, it's, you know, I've been doing coaching for at least four years and walking hundreds of people through these concepts and uh, how to actually do it. It's not just to have the mind shift. That's not enough. It's like, how do you actually do this? Uh, it's going to be the sort of Bible. Like <laughs> I see it as the the how-to companion to the why. Cool. And when does it come out? I'm shooting for end of the year. Excellent. All right. Well, We'll be sure to get our hands on a copy over here. Cool. So we still regrettably didn't even get to altitudes of engagement. So we'll have to have you back on at another point in the future. (laughs) (laughs) And you can have the hat trick of podcast interviews. There you go. Yeah, that would be fun. Jonathan Stark, it's been so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming back on the podcast. That episode was packed with great information. And if you weren't able to take notes and you want those pricing curve ratios, the Goldilocks and the might as well, as well as a super high level on the different pricing methodologies we discussed so that you can keep them straight in your head, go over to shethinksbigcoaching.com forward slash 111, which is this episode number, and download the free PDF that will have that information inside. That link again is shethinksbigcoaching.com forward slash 111. One of my favorite things about this episode was when Jonathan basically provided great market research for you and told you exactly what he wants from his CPA that he's not getting. Jonathan owns a very successful coaching and consulting business, and he is incredibly smart in technical ways, and he still doesn't want to think about the accounting or the money in his business. 
I see some CPA websites that say things along the lines of helping you think differently about accounting or helping you see accounting differently as their tagline or their implicit value proposition. And what he said point blank was, I hate thinking about money. Remember that many of your clients might not want a different way to think about accounting. They don't want to think about accounting at all. They want you to think differently about accounting and then recommend to them what to do differently, like pump the brakes on your target spending. And they will even pay you to sit there hiney down and make them do it. Now, changing years. If you're listening live, it's November, which means that if you want 2021 to be a different experience than 2020, the tax season with no end, you have about three months until tax season starts ramping up to change how you do things in your accounting practice. Otherwise, you're looking at May, June until you resurface from having been sucked under by the compliance vortex. Change is so hard to do alone. If you want a personal trainer to make sure you're getting your business in the shape you want it to be in, be sure to check out my website for some options. True to form, you have options at, you guessed it, different price points. From five figures down to two figures and even free stuff to help you out. Just to give you a quick taste, one-on-one VIP coaching gets you the most progress the fastest. That's typically five figures, sometimes four, depending on how far you want to get. In the lower four-figure range, I am launching a group coaching program that will go until early February to set you up for a more profitable and less exhausting tax season. And at the free level, check out Accountants Anonymous every third Thursday of the month. Thursday, November 19th is 15 phrases to scrub from your CPA firm's website. And December 15th is how to translate your expertise into cash. One last thing is for those of you who have questions about the business side of your CPA firm, soon you will have an easy way to get answers to your questions for free, which is a steal and it won't last long. Stay tuned for details on this one. If you're curious, be sure to subscribe to my mailing list, which you can do on my website. The URL you know by now is shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.